Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to the Great Obsession Podcast. I'm Riley, and I'm drinking a hot apple cider with cinnamon today. Ooh, I love that for you. Um, I'm Sam, and predictably, I'm drinking a hot plain latte. Wow, who could have predicted this? Not me. Never saw that coming. <laughs> well, welcome to our Akatar episodes. We are so excited to be rereading for the first time on this podcast. We are rereading something, and um, specifically Akatar, because we really want to join the discussion here. This is one of the first things we read that got us into, you know, the whole reading fantasy <laughs> realm that we're in right now. <laughs> and so. Um, I feel like we reference it a lot on this podcast, and so we really wanted to actually take the time to go through all the books and share our thoughts. So this episode, will be covering A Court of Thorns and Roses, the first book by Sarah J. Moss. We will not be spoiling any other books within the SJM universe, so none of the other books in this series or Throne of Glass or Crescent City will be spoiled in this episode if you have only read A Court of Thorns and Roses, you're completely safe. In fact, welcome. This episode, <laughs> this episode is, for is for you. you. <laughs> <laughs> because when I read this book, I really wanted to be able to process it with someone. But I was so scared to listen to something because I didn't... Like, so many people had warned me against spoilers mm -hmm. for the rest of the series. So I will say that, too. If you, listener, have not read the rest of the series... Um, please stay offline, stay out of the subreddits, stay out of the fan art for this series until you read A Court of Mist and Fury because it's really worth it to not be spoiled for anything. Yep. All right. Now this is, um, it feels like quite the undertaking to talk about this book. It does. So I will say maybe we can start with the fact that this series seems to have just launched into the stratosphere of popular book talk fantasy literature i think mm -hmm. at least for me akatar falls into a very similar category as fourth wing where mm -hmm. a lot of people who i know who aren't big readers certainly not big fantasy readers all are reading this series um mm -hmm. and i feel like every time somebody like sees it on my shelf they're like oh my god you read this and it's like yeah. every woman under the age of 40 has read this series somehow yeah and I think that's really um interesting because like you said when we I don't know a couple years ago or so I think we were both coming out of college and when you're in college you just don't read at least I uh -huh. didn't. I was like, I don't have time for any like personal no, I reading. Have I have to read all this other shit and I just can't. I don't have the space mm -hmm. for it. And so it had been a long time since I at least had read any fiction for purely entertainment purposes. Mm -hmm. And a friend from work recommended this series to me. And I remember reading this book, picking it up and like getting 100 pages in and being like, I'm finishing this in a night. I it had been so long since I was just hooked on a book couldn't mm -hmm. put it down and reading this book really jump-started my um passion for reading again and it like set me off on a path where I was like all right let's read a book a week kind of thing and I think yeah. that that 
I think others have had a very similar experience where they pick up this book and it instantly sucks them in and it instantly makes them want to read everything else in this series. Yeah, no, I think this series is very much a gateway into high fantasy Mm -hmm. for people who have not read it before or who haven't read it in a long time. And um, because I had a very similar experience, I think I read this a bit later than you. I read this in the summer of 2022, Mm -hmm. which was around the time that I was kind of transitioning jobs, had more time on my hands and was like, I want to get back into reading. And so I picked this up because this was the only like book that I had ever heard of that was fantasy. I feel like I, (laughs) you know, knowing just what the conversations were online and having not read or having not been up to date with what was popular since probably like 2016 yeah. when I started college, um, I wanted to be get up to date with what was popular. And this book was what I saw in the front of every Barnes & Noble. I saw everyone talking about it, which is crazy because that was the summer of 2022. And since then, it has only gotten bigger. And this book came out in 2015. So it's like eight years old. I know. I think that's so crazy because I agree I felt like summer of 2022 was when this series was popping off. That's when um, A Court of Silver Silver Flames. Flames. Okay, I was like, what? (laughs) I'm like trying to say the acronym in my head, but A Court of Silver Flames came out, which is the most recent installment in this series. And so I was like, oh, the hype is all up because, you know, there's a new book, the new book in the series, blah, blah, blah. But like... A year plus later, and I feel like it's more popular than ever, which is crazy because there's not even like a TV show or anything. It's just blowing no. up. It must be big on book talk. It, it is. Okay. That's what it is. It's huge on it. book talk. Everyone who has a book talk has something to say about it, and it's actually quite controversial. SJM herself is yes. quite controversial on book talk as any popular book is just like fourth wing uh you know some people will read it and be like what the hell was the hype around this um and honestly because this was like the first thing i read you know in my 20s like later into adulthood that actually brought me back into the reading sphere i thought that rereading this i was going to be like oh this is not as good as I remember it being. Mm-hmm. And I had the opposite experience. I was like, oh, wow, this shit's good. Mm-hmm. And that was just, that was kind of an interesting experience for me because, like, objectively, I don't think that Fourth Wing, which we're comparing it to, is particularly good. Yeah. And so when you're comparing kind of these gateway novels, of course, it, it depends on what you're defining as good. But for me, as a character-driven reader who wants to understand my characters and the motivations that are driving them and also wants to understand and be able to clearly picture the world that I'm in mm-hmm. in this book, this book is really effective for me in both of those realms. And so I suppose I can see like elements of why it's controversial because if you don't enjoy fantasy, first of all, you're not going to enjoy this. And so many people who've never read fantasy pick this up and are like, this sucks. The magic doesn't make sense. And it's like, okay, but it's fantasy. (laughs) Well, and I think kind of by the same token, I think if you are a really committed, like deep cut high fantasy reader, Mm. this book is going to be too light touch for you because the fantasy element while super present is not complex and fleshed out. Like the world building here is very simple. Yes. And 
The magic system is never explained. No. No, it's just like, there's magic. It happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I think for people who are really into, like, like the Brandon Sanderson fans of mm-hmm. the world are going to be like, what is this? This is puff fantasy. It doesn't make like where's the you know the the logic the tie-in the history of magic yada yada and so i i see sort of on both ways of if you're not into fantasy it's not going to be for you but also if you're like into really intensive world building it's also not going to be for you it's definitely a middle of the road sort of fantasy fiction it's romanticy it's it is it's romanticy which is that's a whole nother conversation about the romanticy genre but um but you know what's interesting about this book and why i think it's so iconic is because it it defined the romanticy genre it created mm. it the popularity of this book is why goodreads in 2023 introduced romanticy as a category i really believe that because yeah. the the hype around this book has caused a lot of similar style of books to be written and it's like so it's like its whole other subgenre where it is fantasy but it's not quite as complex because there's also a lot of page time being given to romance developing between mm-hmm. characters. And I just think that's very interesting. And so for this book specifically, it's a Beauty and the Beast retail- retelling, which I didn't know going in uh, yeah. when I first read this. But reading it back, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, this is... This is really on the nose, isn't it? <laughs> this is Beauty and the Beast, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's it's technically... The, a retelling of the folktale of Tam Lin. Yes, that's what it is. Which is Beauty and the Beast. They're, they're like connected. I don't exactly know which one feeds which, but... Um, I don't know either. But I know that that's where Tam Lin's name comes from, is the, this folktale. I think it's called The Ballad of Tam Lin. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yep. Um, which is pretty interesting that it's that that's why it was written. So it was not necessarily written to like create a new genre that we know of. I think. Or even necessarily tell a super new story plot wise. Like I think no. that there's a lot being told from an emotional story perspective, but less so from a plot perspective. The plot in this book is pretty straightforward. And like we said, it's very familiar because it really is just beauty and the beast. Mm hmm. Yeah. Now, I think we should start kind of getting into the yeah. story and spoiling things. So if you've listened this far and you've not read Akatar, goodbye. Please go read it <laughs> and come back because we're about to spoil <laughs> everything that happens in just this book. So we start out this story with our main character, Feyre, who is in a cold forest. And so we learn pretty quickly she's a hunter. She's providing for her family. She's the youngest of three siblings. And we actually get quite a bit of information on Feyre as a character mm-hmm. in the beginning of the story. And um, so I had actually quite a bit to say here because Feyre as a character is really interesting for me to talk about because unlike a lot of like her- heroines in this mm-hmm. genre, I think she's very tangible as as a character, but she's also not a super strong personality, so she's easy to self-insert into. Yes, yes, because I think throughout the book, Feyre's motivations and um, her actions are all really consistent. They make mm-hmm. sense, and they're reliable throughout the book, which 
I think is something that heroines in other romanticy books struggle with where they're not always super consistent or there's not a, like their motivations don't always make sense or ring true. And that's mm-hmm. not the case with Feyre. I think the consistency of her character makes it really easy to engage with and in be invested in, but also the blandness of her personality allows you to project yourself into that. And I think that that's a really interesting space to be because I yeah. think generally I tend to prefer characters who have really strong personalities and like a strong mm-hmm. voice. But it really works for this book that Feyre doesn't have a very strong personality Mm-hmm. And I think because it's in first person POV, the lack of strong personality becomes less noticeable. Yeah. Versus. No, that's very true. Because you know what's going on in her head. Yeah. Even if she's not saying much. Yes. And so, and I think it makes it really easy to follow and emotionally connect when you're supposed to emotionally connect. Yeah. Yeah, which is nice. I think that's why reading this, like, I got sucked in so easily mm-hmm. the first time and the second time because I just really feel everything that Farah's feeling. So in the beginning, we're introduced to her family, and I think the biggest takeaway here is that her family sucks. Like, and massively sucks. Perhaps massively sucks too sucks. much. Like, why do they suck so much? Yeah, yeah, that's maybe an element of the story that's a little less believable is like her family sucks so much and she's practically killing herself to provide for them and they are so ungrateful. But we don't we don't know why they're we so don't know ungrateful. Why. Like we're just told that they're shitty people and that's why they're ungrateful and it's like but like I don't know. I just I was so confounded the first time I read this of being like <laughs> okay, but like why are they the worst and why is Feyre like a saint like that I know it doesn't make a ton of sense knowing that they all have the same clear history like they all have the same sort of life experiences that just mm-hmm. have different personalities and for some reason Feyre is the only one who got a decent like human like personality and like actually cares about others it's like what what happened there? Yeah. I suppose it's there could be a discussion had about like how people respond to trauma differently and this whole family has experienced a lot of trauma That's fair. through their, you know, their loss of wealth and poverty. And we see this I think this it's pretty believable in Feyre's dad. Yes. Because he we clearly see like someone who has depression mm-hmm. and is completely debilitated by that. He has a, a physical disability that was inflicted upon him. So he feels really helpless and sad because of everything he's lost. And that just makes him lose all motivation to help his family. Mm -hmm. And so, like, that's believable to me. But um, Nesta, in particular, is the character who just, like, is really awful, especially in the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. And Feyre seems to sort of have a fondness for both of her sisters, even though they both really suck like with elaine i suppose it's pretty clear Feyre says this is a direct quote from page 11 elaine sometimes just didn't grasp things it wasn't meanness that kept her from offering to help it simply never occurred to her that she might be capable of getting her hands dirty so she's just fucking stupid i guess i guess like <laughs> and Feyre just accepts that and is like okay 
And I think Nesta also senses that, and so she kind of feels fiercely protective of Elaine. Yeah, there's a um, real protective energy for everyone around Elaine. <laughs> yes. But for Feyre, Nesta is just such a bitch. Like, she weaponizes her incompetence when Feyre asks her to go chop wood. She's like, but Feyre, your hands are suited for it. They're already so rough. And it's done so so much better when you do it. Like, as if necessary tasks like hunting and chopping wood are beneath Nesta. Mm-hmm. It's like she thinks that Feyre is inferior to her because Feyre is doing hard work to provide for the family. Meanwhile, Nesta wouldn't survive if Feyre didn't do any of this. Mm-hmm. So it just doesn't really make sense. Yeah. All is that to say is Feyre's relationship with her family is interesting because she she clearly feels a strong drive to protect them. And she says that it's because of a vow she makes to her mother in the beginning. Um, But we kind of deconstruct that later in the book when Tamlin helps her realize it's actually just because she loves her family, despite all of their flaws. And she doesn't really want to admit it, but she does. Mm -hmm. And so she also, though, loves to paint. So she has another desire besides survival, which I think is pretty interesting because in the beginning you know they're so poor that all they really have time to think about is surviving but Feyre makes it clear from the beginning that the way she sees the world is through an artist's mind Mm -hmm. which I think is an element of this book I quite like yes like the way that textures and colors are described uh through Feyre's eyes is is really nice and she'll often describe something as a beautiful texture but then be like but I'm not going to get to paint it because I'm too poor. <laughs> and you're like, damn, it's a rough life up there. Okay. <laughs> and then we also find out that she's fucking Isaac Hale and he's terrible in bed, which this just cracked me up, this line. This is from like page, page three. So it's like one of the first things we learn. Stolen hours in a decrepit barn with Isaac Hale didn't count. Those times were hungry and empty and sometimes cruel, but never lovely. Like, damn, she has nothing good to say about it. I did think that it was interesting to add that sort of uh, detail because it's not, it's really unnecessary in like the broad scheme of the plot. It's sort of like a throwaway fact that her and this random boy have sort of been having like a on and off again relationship. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it does something interesting in. The fact that we know when she inevitably goes to the spring court and has a relationship with Tamlin, I think knowing that it's not her first relationship mm. and her first time with any kind of physical intimacy is important. Yeah, I, that's a good point. I think it change. I think if we look at the relationship with Tamlin and you think about it as if she was like a virgin and never had any kind of relationship with a boy at all that like puts a weird sort of sheen on it mm-hmm. but because we know that she does have this prior experience I think it makes it more like like you trust Feyre more because she's, yeah. she has experience and so we like trust her to know what she wants and like what's good and what's not good because we've got this foundational piece that 
she has experienced. And so I thought that that was really interesting the first time I read it. Because at first I was like, I was like, oh, Isaac Hale is going to be like a main character or something. And then he's immediately not. And so then it's like, why did we have that? But I do think it, it tells us something important about Feyre. Yes, which is that she knows what she wants. Mm-hmm. She, you know, when she's starving and desperate, she goes out of her way to seek pleasure and release with this guy and they Mm -hmm. sort of have this like relationship where they really don't connect emotionally at Mm -hmm. all but they just use each other and so I think that's that kind of gives her character an interesting edge maybe um because so many of the so many female main characters are just complete saints (laughs) who who never want anything until it's given to them Mm -hmm. and Feyre very much knows what she wants and and is acting like a normal human yes she feels very human she does feel very human which i think is is super important and i think also is part of why she's such a relatable character and easy to insert yourself because she behaves and thinks the way a human a real person would versus so many times we read stories and it's like well like no one's actually doing that kind of thing. Yeah. And that's really not the case with Feyre. She's very, I think SJM does a really good job of like capturing the genuine human psyche in a variety of different scenarios. Yes. Yes. Which that's a great segue into Feyre's next scenario, which is going to the spring court. So she, you know, we see how, how she's behaving, how she's living when she's in complete and total poverty, fighting every day to survive. And then um, Tamlin comes and essentially kidnaps her in this form of his, his like, beast mode form. <laughs> I know. I sort of forget about that. <laughs> Me too. I sort of had blocked it out of my memory that High Lords can shapeshift. No, I think it's just Tamlin. I think that's Tamlin's power. I think Resan says to Feyre at one point that all High Lords can shapeshift and then... I just remember this scene because it was weird. Resand grows, he like grows claws on his hands and feet and unleashes his wings. And then he's like, that's it. I don't like to like cease myself to the beast or whatever. He like says something stupid that you're like, okay, so you are superior to Tamlin because I guess you don't shift into an animal. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah, it's also a weird beast because it's like he has the head of a wolf, but a the body of a lion or is Yo, it the other listen, way around whenever people are like oh and it was like the head of an eagle with the body of a tiger and the legs of a crocodile i'm like what is that don't do that to me what is yeah this, what does a sphinx look like i don't know <laughs> couldn't tell you no i literally just picture tamlin's animal form as like the werewolves in twilight but blonde yeah i can get that's bo- what it that's, looks like yeah i get behind that so he comes and he kidnaps her she like tries to valiantly defend her family but then and this is important her family doesn't really resist when she leaves they tell her like Feyre go just just go and she's like but who's gonna take care of you and they're like I don't know bye and so she leaves and goes to the spring court and again once again behaves as I would expect a normal person to behave which is that she is scared. Mm-hmm. She like rigs up a trap on her bedroom door the first night, even though she knows it's completely futile. 
because she's human and these are fae, but she's like, maybe if I like buy myself time to run, like, I don't know. She has to be like, feel like she's doing something to Mm -hmm. protect herself because she's terrified. And she's also angry because Mm -hmm. she's like, you took me away from my family because of some law that I didn't know about. Like what? That's kind of fucked up. And they're like, you should be happy. Look at all this food. And she's like, fuck you. And I just really appreciate that about her. Yeah. Well, and I think once again, it's just a refreshing perspective to have because so often you get characters who are taken to some kind of magical land with a bunch of super hot beings and you're like, ooh, and they're like, wow, I'm swooning and I'm so happy and it's all so pretty. And you just sort of are expected to sort of forget about the circumstances that they were in previously and how they got there and Mm -hmm. everything. But Feyre, Mm -hmm. throughout this entire book, holds on to the place that she came from and the circumstances that brought her here. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is, like you said, it's it's a very tangible response. Yeah. So I, I really like that because I feel like throughout this story, as she's in the spring court, we really see like a a real character arc happening mm-hmm. um where she she learns how to live in the spring court because when she first gets there she doesn't know how to live she doesn't know what to do when she's she can't not even see anyone. desperately trying to survive <laughs> yeah there's also that like everyone's invisible except for Alice and Tamlin and Lucian which is pretty hilarious i also think she's got a a hilarious dynamic between them because she's like pretty uh prickly Mm-hmm. And there's one scene in particular that I thought was so funny is when Tamlin and Lucian like ask her if she's in love with anyone else. And we know from later in the book that it's because, you know, they're, there's this curse. And so they're trying to suss out if it's possible for Fair to fall in love with Tamlin. But um, OK, so on page 65, indulge me, you're a human woman and yet you'd rather eat. So this is Lucian talking. Uh, you'd rather eat hot coals than sit here longer than necessary. Ignoring this, he waves a hand at his metal eye, surely we're not so miserable to look at. Typical fairy vanity and arrogance that at least the legends had been right about. Uh, and then Lucian goes, unless you have someone back home, unless there's a line of suitors out the door of your hovel that makes us seem like worms in comparison. And Fair was like, oh, I was close with a man back in my village. <laughs> and then Tamlin just goes, are you in love with this man? And she's like, no. And Tamlin's like, and do you love anyone else? And then she just starts, she bursts out laughing and she's like, no, is this really what you care to know about me? If I find you more handsome than human men, and if I have a man back at home, why bother to ask at all when I'll be stuck here for the rest of my life? And Tamlin tries to write it off as like, we wanted to learn more about you. Da, da, da. But I just think that interaction's hilarious because Tamlin is clearly so awkward. So that he awkward. doesn't know how to like, like he does. He's not a charismatic, like extroverted kind of guy. He like does not know how to act around Feyre. And it's hilarious. Well, and I think that it's kind of nice because you get Feyre is thrust into this world and like you said, like she's afraid and she doesn't really know what's going on. She doesn't know the rules of the game. 
And she's with Tamlin, who's, like, this mega weirdo and just, like, super <laughs> awkward. And gradually, you as the reader get to go on this journey with Feyre of becoming more comfortable in the spring court. This world sort of mm-hmm. opening up to her and, like, her getting comfortable and confident in that space. While at the same time, her and Tamlin's relationship is gradually opening up as well. And they, like have little moments, little nuggets of vulnerability where you get to see that they actually have a lot in common and that they actually have like a real basis for their relationship. Mm -hmm. It's so gradual and steady that I think it makes you really buy into their romance because so often it's like, oh my gosh, I saw him. He was hot. Chemistry was off the charts and like we banged two weeks later kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And this is such a long form sort of slow burn over the course of this book of them gradually getting to know each other and allowing themselves to open up enough because they both have serious trauma and like serious Mm -hmm. issues that it, Mm -hmm. it makes sense that they should be really slow to come together. And I think it's, really important that they get that space to slowly come together and it makes it feel much more organic it makes you really buy into their relationship and you feel Mm -hmm. like there are real stakes at play with their relationship because of how gradually it gets built up right right and I I also appreciate that um like we see Feyre genuinely start to fall for him instead of just like being charmed by a super charismatic guy. Mm -hmm. Because I think that happens a lot as well in in romance. And and I don't think Feyre gets like charmed or tricked in Mm -hmm. any way in this relationship. I think she really, her and Tamlin both really genuinely start to realize that they have some things in common and that they understand each other. And, and yeah, that, so that makes it fun to read. Um, and we do get about 100 pages in is when we first get Tam- Tamlin and Feyre, like, starting to bond a little bit. It's when he comes back and he's got, like, a bloodied hand because he's been out, like, on the border. And funnily enough, in this book, he, like, goes out to the border all the time and we have no idea what he's doing. I suppose he's just, like, killing evil creatures or something. But that's besides the point. He comes back with a hurt hand and Feyre helps clean off his bloody, dirty hand, which is, like, one of the first times that she willingly touches him. And he finds out that she can't write. So he's like, you can't write, yet you learn to hunt to survive. How? And she says, that's what happens when you're responsible for lives other than your own, isn't it? You do what you have to do. And he says, you aren't what I expected for a human. So he's, he has to throw in the, the for, for a human, human part. But I like that that's, I think, the first moment when she says that. I think Tamlin realizes, like, oh, we're the same. But he's not really let, ready to let her in mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. I also, I also will say... Was he thinking that she was, like, learning how to hunt by, like, reading a book about it? <laughs> like, I don't, yeah, I don't that know. Part why doesn't make that doesn't make sense to me. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't really see that, but whatever. Um, yeah, I think that 
you're right. This moment really lays the foundation for understanding Tamlin and Feyre's relationship. That this idea mm-hmm. that they are both in survival mode and doing whatever it takes to protect the people that they re- feel responsible for is mm-hmm. like really the basis of their relationship and their coming together. And I think over time, Tamlin starts to see Feyre as somebody that he is also responsible for. And Mm -hmm. Feyre starts to feel that way about him as well, where they, like, really feel like each other is theirs to protect. Yes. Which is kind of an interesting dynamic for them to have when she is human. Mm Mm-hmm. And he is Faye and much more powerful. And I will say that's something that I don't love about this book is just how Feyre's so powerless because she's human. Mm-hmm. And she has to like, she's just, she has actually quite little autonomy in this book where she kind of just keeps getting put in all these situations and she's too powerless to change them. Mm-hmm. So she learns to adapt which is the arc that we get is her learning how to adapt and learning what she wants and how to achieve that within the circumstances. But it is... uh, Yeah, the power dynamic between her and Tamlin and her and Lucian, basically everyone uh, throughout this book defines, like starts to really define Feyre in this world of being Mm -hmm. constantly on the bottom of the power dynamic, always the weaker one, always the vulnerable one, always the one who can just be, she's a pawn in everybody else's game. And Mm -hmm. I think that that starts to really shape her because as we move further into the book, she starts getting pretty fed up with being so powerless and a pawn to the point that she just sort of goes like, fuck it, I'm gonna go get myself killed and like (laughs) go under the mountain. Um, yeah. And, and I think once she does that, that everything from that point on is really the first time that we see her with agency, even though mm-hmm. she's still weaker and she's still vulnerable to all of those power dynamics. She is actually an active participant at that point in shaping her future in a way that she's not for the bulk of this book. Yeah, that's very true. I think the little agency that she does have while she's living at the spring court, she does her best to use it. She goes to the surreal, which is one of the most iconic parts of this book. One of my favorite parts, Um, specifically the part when Lucian tells her how to go find the surreal. And the dialogue is so funny because he's like sort of telling her, he's like, Uh, But it's a good thing I had no role in telling you to go out today since Tam would eviscerate anyone who told you how to trap a surreal. And it's a good thing I had planned to hunt anyway, because if anyone caught me helping you, there would be trouble of a whole other hell waiting for us. I hope your secrets are worth it. So that's a great moment because A, it's a great moment for Lucian because we sort of get this dynamic between him and Feyre where they're like sort of cautiously allies. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, and obviously Lucian knows more than Feyre because he knows about this curse. But uh, up until that point, Feyre had felt nothing but disdain and snark from him. And so th- that moment was fun. And it was nice to see Feyre be like, I'm not going to just sit here. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm going to do something. And, and she does. And Lucian helps her do it, which is nice. 
Yeah, I I love Lucian. I will not lie. I was like really rooting for him for like a decent <laughs> portion of this book. I was like, okay, but like Feyre and Lucian maybe? Because you're right. I remember wondering that too. Their banter is just so good and Tamlin's banter is non-existent because it's not he he's just, so dry. He's like grunts is how he communicates. <laughs> It's he's literally the beast from Beauty and the Beast. I yeah. mean, it's no, right no. There. We as yeah, we have the beast as, in Tamlin, and we have Lumiere in Lucian, and it's just a great time. But I always love like he really provides he and Favors banter really provides the comedic relief in this book mm-hmm. because. Tamlin is very serious. Nobody's telling Feyre anything. There's just a lot of, like, everyone else is so clearly stressed at all times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That to have these little breaks where it's like, oh, this is like a gradual budding friendship based on, like, snark and just, like, insulting each other. It really adds levity to the situation and... I think it also does an important job as far as humanizing the Fae because mm-hmm. Tamlin feels so otherworldly because he doesn't communicate particularly and he has like a literal and figurative mask on and he can transform and do all this stuff and, and there's just this real distance with him Mm -hmm. as like a being versus Lucian initially that distance is there but over time Feyre really just is like nah screw you like you're just like any other guy (laughs) and like they they their friendship really creates a mechanism for being like okay the Fey are not as different emotionally than we think they are yeah no that's very true because Lucian is sort of this bridge i think between Mm -hmm. feyre and tamlin a little bit in the beginning that makes feyre realize like oh these are these are just guys (laughs) just (laughs) which is it's kind of nice because in the beginning of the book when you know we're getting a little bit of world building and feyre tells us as the reader that there's this land with these fey and then all and the high fey are like super magical super powerful humanoid fairies and then the high lords of the high fey are like so powerful they could pulverize you with one look and so they're they're like really put on this pedestal Mm -hmm. and by the time that Feyre finds out from the surreal that tamlin is a high lord i mean she's shocked she's shooketh for sure Mm -hmm. but she's not like like i think they've come down from the pedestal a little bit in her mind because mm-hmm. she's been like, oh, these are just like some weird dudes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think if we knew from the get-go that Tamlin was a high lord, like, I don't think Feyre maybe with time would have opened up to him, but I think that we would have been dealing with a much different dynamic because she has such a preconceived notion and fear of him that mm-hmm. when she does ultimately find out that he's a high lord, like you said, there's enough of a a familiarity to, like, buffer the fear. 
Yeah, because she would have been terrified of yeah, him. She would have peed Even her more pants. so than she already was. Yeah. <laughs> she would not have spoken to him. So I really appreciate the the way that information is slowly revealed to us throughout mm-hmm. this story. I think that's what also makes it fun to read and what makes it quite palatable as like a first timer fantasy. Because, I mean, the world in this book is pretty small. We get mm, like yeah. Feyre's human world, the spring court, and then later under the mountain. And that's all. And they we come really in get. very like. They're very truncated. It's like, we are in human world. This is human world. We are in spring court. This is spring court. We are under the mountain. This is under the mountain. That's not like you're learning about under the mountain while we're in the spring court. Like, it's very, like, clear um, stages for the story. Right. And, like, information is presented to us as Feyre learns it, Mm -hmm. which is nice. Now, I think there's kind of a turning point after the surreal when Feyre does find out that Tamlin is a high lord. And she also finds out that there's like this blight on the world or on the the fairy world that's like harming the magic in some way. It's like really vague. She doesn't really understand (laughs) what it is. But the surreal's only advice is stay with the high lord, uh, which is iconic of him. Yeah. Anyway, after the surreal, though, she comes back and... This uh, this fairy shows up at Tamlin's doorstep with his wings cut off. And I think this is the first time where we really get a depiction of, like, the violence mm. of this world. Like, we, we have encounters with that, that really scary creature that Sam and I don't know how to pronounce. The bog. The, bo- the bogey. The bogey. The boga. I don't know how to say it. But we get that encounter and we get... I mean, Tamlin's kind of scary in his beast form. But really, like, we know everyone's stressed as fuck in this book. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know why, I think, until this fairy shows up. And Pharaoh's like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. This is bad. And this is a, a really effective moment in the book for a lot of things. A- aside from, like, p- uh, depiction of the stakes... I I really like how this moment, how Feyre and Tamlin interact in this mm-hmm. moment. Like, they both just kind of spring into action, which oh, we love a, a female main character that springs into action. Truly, <laughs> truly. <laughs> and uh, and it's really emotional. You know, she, like, holds his hand and tells mm-hmm. him that it's going to be okay until he dies. And um, and then Tamlin goes to take that, that fairy away to bury him, and Feyre's like... Let me come with you. And Tamlin says, no, I need to do this alone. And then Feyre says, actually, I understand because I would have wanted to do it alone too. And she doesn't say that out loud, but that's a, a really great moment where you realize, like, once again, Feyre and Tamlin are the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that this was one of the moments for me as the reader where I was like, okay, I actually can start seeing Tamlin as a romantic interest now. Because I think Mm. prior to this point, I was like, I don't know. Tamlin's a weirdo. And he's, like, kind (laughs) of creepy in, like, some ways just because he is, like, so awkward and, like, non-communicative that I – that I was like, ah, maybe Lucian is who we're rooting for. But I think once we get to this scene – And you see Tamlin be, like, so gentle with this random fairy that you don't know. And you see that he's deeply affected by what's happening. Mm -hmm. And he's also deeply affected by how Pharaoh responds. That you're like, okay, there's depth to this guy that I haven't fully grasped. And that makes him intriguing. And that shows me that they're 
is just like more to him than being like a gruff awkward dude and so I think that it's just a really important point in their relationship for both of them for Tamlin to see Feyre as caring about the fairies and seeing them as not other anymore like kind of they Mm -hmm. are the same and Feyre sort of recognizing uh like a kindred spirit in Tamlin that they have this common sort of personality if you will yeah yeah and if I remember correctly from that scene I didn't write this quote down but I think that Tamlin asks her like why did you you know why did you hold his hand why did you come help I thought you hated the fae because up until this point she's pretty hateful towards Mm -hmm. like the the race of the fae (laughs) and um there's a little bit of a world building question in there as far as like the like race species situation um yeah which we can just table that for suspend your disbelief but i just had to flag that it's it's incredibly unclear in this book what the difference is between like high lord versus fae versus fairy versus all these random ass creatures anyways continue yeah no that's very true the like social structure is a little bit um they're playing it fast and loose it's it's fine yeah they are it's fine because it's it doesn't really play that much of a role in the story, but we, other than we know that Feyre hates the Fae, mm-hmm. because I think in the human world, they're led to believe that, like, the Fae hate them. To be fair, the Fae previously did enslave the humans, so um, <laughs> she fair. has very strong hatred for them, and and so in this moment, Tamlin's like, why did you do that? Like, you you expressed, like, genuine empathy mm-hmm. to this fairy, and, and you held him as he died, and she says... Because I wouldn't have wanted to die alone either. And so we see directly that she's empathizing with this fairy. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a big turning point for her. Um, where she's like, oh, fairies, they're just like us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so it's, um, again, I think a, a nice moment for them both to also like let down their walls a little bit. Because this is, this is why Tamlin is so difficult for the first portion of the book. is he His walls are up. He does oh, not want to yeah. let pharah in yes he's very closed off very distant and yet like probing for information about her all the time and she's like bro i'm not telling you anything about myself well i don't know anything about you well and that's the thing is tamlin's walls are up but pharah's walls are equally up but us as the reader aren't registering that as much because we're in pharah's head and so to us Mm -hmm. the walls don't exist because we're in her head right but they are both equally combative and equally closed off and Lucian's just like in the middle being like guys guys (laughs) you're gonna fall in love with her right yeah Tamlin's like "Mm, what (laughs) (laughs) what but his walls I think both of their walls come down a little bit in this moment Mm -hmm. in the way that they um they both empathize with this fairy and they see the other's reaction and so from here I think we get several more moments Mm -hmm. where Tamlin and Feyre start to understand each other so Tamlin um also finally convinces Feyre to start painting and Feyre for the first time in her life is like pursuing something that she actually wants to do as opposed to trying to survive Mm -hmm. and I think that's a big that's big for her character it really it tells us a lot about um what she has been deprived of in her life And suddenly she has someone providing for her and she feels safe. And she expresses that through her 
her desire to paint. It is funny, though, because uh, I think she's bad at painting. She's like, no, Damlin, don't look at my paintings. They're bad. And I just like to picture what her paintings might look like if they're just pieces of shit. (laughs) I mean, to be fair, she hasn't gotten to practice. No, she has not. But I do think that there's something there um, that you had said as far as now Feyre has somebody providing for her. And we Mm -hmm. know that obviously for the bulk of her life, she has been the main provider, the main protector of her family. And then when she is in the spring court at the beginning, she's in she feels so threatened by them and she has so much fear that she is trying to protect herself. And Mm -hmm. as she opens up, I think it's really interesting to think about her taking a step back and being like, okay, I feel safe enough that I'm going to allow someone else to protect and provide for me now. Mm -hmm. And that feels like a really big arc moment for her of being of deciding that she's not going to be the provider and protector anymore and she just wants to chill out with her paint yeah and deciding that like she's going to let herself trust tamlin and lucian to protect her Mm -hmm. uh because i think for a while she just really didn't was mistrustful of them and um and after that moment with that that murdered fairy she finally is like okay I trust you. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we kind of get like a time jump where like weeks on weeks pass and she's just painting away. She's just vibing. I love that for her. Sometimes we need this a is- vacation, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And she really gets one. And as a reader, like self-inserting myself into her shoes, I'm like, man, must be nice. Must like, be nice. <laughs> every single need you have is being provided for mm-hmm. and you could just get to vibe. Yes. But all of these gradual moments of, like, trust building and finding commonality with Tamlin sort of all build up to the great right, which is when there's a shift in their relationship from being, okay, I, like, trust you to provide for me and we – I consider you a safe space to I consider you a romantic person. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like a romantic interest. Yes, yes. The, there's like a real shift at the Great Right. The Great Right itself is what is that? What is that? What? Why? Why? And like the thing <laughs> is, is it's like so sort of like unhinged and then never mentioned again. I know <laughs> it doesn't come up again. But it just is like I think it just like they, it begs so many questions about like sex magic in this world. And, like, know. what is what is happening with that? Why do they have to have sex in order to, like, unleash magic upon the land? Do they have... Does every High Lord have to do this? I just have so many questions. I don't understand. SJM was like, all right, so they've made it to the friendship stage, and now I need something to trigger jealousy. However, they're in, like, this semi-apocalyptic world, and so there's not a ton of other viable ladies. So <laughs> let me add in a sex magic, and that'll do it. That'll do it. That'll show them. I think that's so funny. That whole section is like, I just remember reading The Great Right and like Feyre was like, okay, I'm gonna go outside even though everybody told me not to. And I was like, this is 
every every piece of this is the worst idea you have ever had. I also think that it's a really important moment because she was strongly discouraged from going out and she's like they're they're like it's going to be dangerous. It's going to be wild. You're not going to be safe. And mm-hmm. we do get this moment of Feyre being like, "Well, screw you." And uh she has a nice moment, one of many, where she decides she's not going to do what Tamlin has told her to do. And she's going to get herself up into some shenanigans. She puts herself yeah. in a lot of shenanigan scenarios. She really does, which is honestly just like reading this when she leaves the house on the night of the great right it's like girl why this is actively a terrible idea but i was also like this is deeply relatable that she just does not like being told what to do mm-hmm. and she's gonna go out of her way to do the opposite <laughs> i just think she's so real for that truly a very relatable so she goes out and um and it is a terrible idea she almost gets like she gets accosted by some random fairies and we have our first encounter with a character who comes back later in the book, which is Resand, High Lord of the Night Court. The man with uh, blue eyes so deep they're violet, which is not a tangible which description not- whatsoever. What does it mean? We don't know. <laughs> I know, like, blue and violet are actively not different the same colors. Color. <laughs> make it make sense. It's fine. Whatever. We'll let that it's go. It's silly. We had to make Resand, I guess, mysterious and also hot. So we had to give him violet eyes because okay. he's not like other high lords. So <laughs> we meet Resand, and um, and I think this basically what this does is just serves to like I guess establish him as a character because he's so mm-hmm. important towards the end of the book that I think if he had only showed up at the end of the book, it would be like. Who is this? But it also sort of establishes the power dynamic between Reese and Feyre mm-hmm. because he, too, has to save her. And she is mad at him about it. But she's also like, well, if you didn't save me, I I guess bad things would have happened. So it's just it's an interesting dynamic that they have and that it, it begins here. Yes, it's an interesting introduction. And I think it's important because it... It's important that Resand, as a character and his relationship with Tamlin and Amarantha is sort of like on-ramped for us because we get this first introduction at the Great Rite and then he comes back mm-hmm. and like scours Feyre's mind during breakfast. And, yeah. <laughs> and I think that both of those moments are important because we get to establish A – that he can kind of appear anywhere at any time and mm-hmm. like it's it's implied that he's he's seriously powerful in a way mm-hmm. that Tamlin can't really compete with mm-hmm. and we see that he and Tamlin clearly have a pre-existing dynamic and yes. Feyre later on becomes sort of a pawn in their dynamic where it's like Rhysan uses her to sort of get at Tamlin. Yeah. And I think it's important that that's established before we get to Under the Mountain because Under the Mountain is just like pure chaos. Just like pure everything is awful all the time. And I think some of these dynamics had to be established beforehand and like the complexity and morally gray 
status of Resan had to be established beforehand because there's just so much happening under the mountain that I think it would have been hard to also cram in that complexity. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't have worked. And so like, I think having a gradual introduction to him is actually quite helpful. And it's a gradual introduction. We get a lot, several moments throughout the book of gradual introductions to Amarantha and what she yes. is like capable of and what her MO is and how everybody else is interacting with her. That then when we meet her, I think it's very satisfying because it's almost like, ah, oh, here's my final puzzle piece of mm-hmm. who this villain is, which I think is nice. Yeah, no, that's very true. This also just serves to show Feyre that when she goes out of her way to disobey Tamlin, she gets put in danger and she has to be saved. Like every time. Every time. She has to, she has to be saved, uh, which is just unfortunate for her. But it, I think it does sort of, like you were saying earlier, contribute to like the way she perceives herself and her role in the fairy world Mm -hmm. is that she's she learns that she's very vulnerable and uh and needs to be protected yeah i i do think that's that's interesting what you're just saying is like every time she tries to sort of do her own thing she like immediately becomes like like in a life-threatening situation yeah so it's like every every time she tries to exercise agency she like almost dies and has to be and she like is incapable of saving herself and I think that really that plus this idea that the fae are sort of just generally superior beings to humans ends up really shooting her confidence Mm -hmm. and she really when Tamlin there are a few moments where she's like, I want to help you. Like, how can I help you? And he just, he shuts her down. And he's like, there's nothing you can do. Like, you have to, I just want you to stay here, stay safe, protected. Because you are not capable. Like, if you tried to help me, you would die. And she just really accepts that. And she just, like, takes that on. And she's like, you're right. Because every time I do try to do something, I almost die. And so I, mm-hmm. I think we see in the beginning... Like, she kills a fae in the beginning. Like, that's how she yeah. gets in this scenario. So there, there is, and, like, she sets up the trap outside of her door. Like, she recognizes that they're more powerful, but in the beginning, we really have a sense that she will do what it takes to, to survive. Mm-hmm. And then we make this transition where she's sort of like, oh, well, actually, I don't believe I can survive anymore. I believe I need to be protected now. And Tamlin Mm -hmm. really feeds that. And I think that that's an interesting sort of transition that she makes up until basically like the end of the book. Yeah, because, um, I mean, ultimately, the only reason she survives under the mountain is because of Reese interfering. interfering. Uh, But we'll get to that. Because uh, I do want to talk about the that scene in particular. You just referenced it. Um, it's page 207 when Farah and Tamlin are having a conversation. This is after the Great Rite. Um, and Farah shows Tamlin some of her paintings. And it's it's both a sweet moment and also kind of a, a strange moment mm-hmm. for their relationship. Because... She she shows him all these paintings and tells him the one that she wants him to have, which I think is like a painting of the spring court. And he's like, no, I want to take this painting that's just like a bleak winter woods and like sad colors. 
because he tells her it reminds me that I'm not alone. She has something in common with him, this feeling of like, I I don't know, just like these dark feelings because Mm -hmm. um, not everything is in her control, nor is it in his control. So that scene is nice. And I think they, they really connect in that scene. But also Feyre directly says, tell me there's some way to help you with the masks, with whatever threat has taken so much of your power. Tell me what I can do to help you. And he he immediately shuts her down. He's like, a human wishes to help a fairy? She's like, don't tease me. Just tell me. But he says, there's nothing I want you to do, nothing you can do. What I have to face, what I endure, Farah, you would not survive. And she kind of pushes back. She's like, so I'm to live here forever in ignorance of the true scope of what's happening? If you don't want me to understand what's going on, would you rather I found someplace else to live? And he's like, no. I don't want you to live somewhere else. I want you here where I can look after you, where I can come home and know you're here painting and safe. So it's like, at this point, clearly they have affection for each other, Mm -hmm. but their desires are a little bit different Mm -hmm. because she wants to help him and he does not want to let her in. He tells her that she can't and she ultimately believes him Mm -hmm. and moves on. And I think this is also sort of the beginning glimpse we have of Tamlin and his sort of martyr complex. Mm-hmm. Because we see that even it just develops further when he's under the mountain and he's just like, mm-hmm. here I am. And I'm he like doesn't fight back and he doesn't sort of respond at all because he's so sort of resigned to his fate Mm -hmm. and Feyre finds that to be really uh, disturbing Mm -hmm. and frustrating and she doesn't understand it and I think that that's maybe where their commonality starts to divide a little bit of they both are have all these really common perspectives and their protectors and their survivors but their Tamlin tends to lean a little bit more towards being a martyr and Feyre tends to lean a little bit more into being angry and throwing herself Mm -hmm. into something. And so that's, you sort of see that develop when they're under the mountain and they start to fundamentally not understand each other when they're in that hyper traumatic space. Yeah. And I really appreciate that the groundwork is laid this early on Mm -hmm. like 200 pages in when you know they don't go under the mountain for still a little while um that we understand sort of why tamlin maybe reacted or he remained the way he reacts under the mountain remains consistent with yes what his character has been doing up until that point um but even still i think they have a nice romance here they clearly connect they have this this feeling in common where they were thrust into circumstances they didn't choose for themselves and they had to adapt and learn to protect those around them and um and so pretty shortly after that scene we get their first kiss uh which is lovely Mm -hmm. going back though when you first read this and you got to the scene where he bites her on her neck (laughs) what was your reaction were you into it no, I was not. I the, the the this was my first sort of intro into like real animal characteristics in a yeah. romance. And I remember it when I read it, I was not like, "Ooh, that's hot." I was definitely more like, "Ooh, that's a little creepy scary for me." I d- I was not mm-hmm. it felt to me, it felt threatening. 
Feyre yes. does not seem to feel threatened by it in the same way I did. But I, I, no. I didn't, um, no, I wasn't like, ooh, bite me. <laughs> no, I, I had a similar reaction, although I do remember reading this for the first time and being like, okay, this is kind of hot that they're like having this moment just because Feyre so clearly is like, reacting to him even touching her Mm -hmm. and so and that's when I started you know I was already kind of rooting for them to have a romance by this point so it's like ooh, okay but then he bites her and I don't remember what exactly she says but she says something like don't bite me like some enraged beast you weirdo Mm -hmm. so (laughs) she like simultaneously enjoys the closeness but also thinks it's weird well, and, uh, I think I there's that. something really alluring about the intensity of the moment. Like, I remember mm-hmm. that being hot, but mm-hmm. then, and maybe similar to Feyre to some extent, like, the bite is like, oh, this is, like, maybe a step too far. I do mm-hmm. think it's interesting to think about him as, like, a fae, and is this just a clear difference between fae and human relationships because is this just like a a little like subtle reminder that they are not the same species like he is a fae she is a human and therefore he's gonna have these more sort of animalistic characteristics yeah do we want to talk about under the mountain yes because i think that's the next most important part of this story um we've up until this point established Feyre's kind of confidence and understanding of herself within this fey world we've also established her and tamlin having a relationship uh and then tamlin is an idiot and sends her back to her home which um which is such a vibe kill i remember her going back to the like the human world and i was like yo it sucks here more than I thought. <laughs> I know. Well, and Feyre does the same thing. She's like, the food here tastes like ash. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like- well, and I do think it's a real compliment to SJM's writing because when she does go to the human world, as a reader, it reads more dull. Like, it's like mm-hmm. a drab world. Like, I feel like the Fae world is really vibrant and then the human world is just really Blech. And I think it's yeah. pretty crazy to be able to pull that off in your writing. That not only is Feyre thinking that, but also as the reader, my mental image of this world is very um, bland. Yeah, no, I agree. I also think this part, though, does serve nicely for Feyre to realize that her family is protected. Because I do think that that was nagging at oh, the back yeah. of her head. She was not able to write to them, so she doesn't know. And she did want to be able to warn them about this blight of magic or whatever. So I think it's some nice closure for her to go back and see that, like, Elaine is happy gardening. Nesta is still Nesta, but she's a little bit more understanding of of Feyre because she didn't see through the glamour. And um, I appreciated that about her. That I also remember that making me feel really intrigued about Nesta's character mm-hmm. because Feyre even has, like, a quote where she says something like, Nesta is not normal (laughs) (laughs) yeah i don't remember exactly what she says i know i i think i flagged it right here um oh yeah she's like i'd forgotten how cunning her eyes were how cold she was as different from the humans around us as i had become which is just 
you know, interesting. We don't really get any elaboration on that in this book, but mm-hmm. I remember being like, huh, the sisters must um, must not just be an afterthought like we thought they were. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she goes home and Nesta essentially helps her to leave and go back to the fairy world once she finds out that the Better family, Claire Better's family, died in a fire and Claire went missing. Feyre immediately knows something is wrong and she goes back, thankfully, because if she had stayed in the human world any longer, I would have quit reading. I know! It's, <laughs> it's literally the worst part of the book is when she like goes back to the human world. It's so boring. And they're like throwing a ball for no reason. It's so stupid. Uh, but her family's happy, so we love that for them. So we go uh, back to the fairy world and she goes under the mountain, which is just an interesting decision, I think, that we see her make mm-hmm. because up until this point, we know that she's pretty powerless towards the Fae. Right. But she, I think it's a testament to how strong her feelings are for Tamlin and also how angry she feels mm-hmm. uh, when she is helpless. And she just feels like she she has to do something. And I also think she feels a lot of guilt for, like, she could have solved this all by just telling Tamlin she loved him and she didn't. Yes. No, I think she feels, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a lot of guilt when she finds out that, that she could have been the cure, whatever, to this curse this whole time, Alice tells mm-hmm. her. And I think she also is starting to realize that what's happening in the fairy world is going to impact the human world because Claire has been taken and Mm -hmm. she knows that she gave Rhysand that name when he Mm -hmm. was like digging in her mind or whatever. And so I think she's like, oh shit, the things I'm doing here or the things that are happening here are having implications for the humans. Yes. And it's maybe my fault. And so I think that there's just so many things happening that she feels guilty about. The curse, never telling Tamlin she loves him, the Claire, all of these things are sort of culminating that she is just like, screw it, because I'm probably going to die anyways if this crosses over into the human world. So I might as well go out, shoot my shot, Let's just fuck it, you know? I Yeah. It is it was an interesting time reading it because you as the reader, as we previously stated, every time she goes off on her own, she needs to be rescued. Yeah. And you're like, okay, but this seems like your worst decision yet. <laughs> Definitely no one's available to rescue you. And so as it was happening, I was like, oh girl, I do not know where this is going. But I do think it is a real testament to her character. And I think it also is just another step in her arc of being like, mm-hmm. okay, I st- I was allowing others to protect me for a while and I was content mm-hmm. with that. But now when we're down to the nitty gritty at the core of who Feyre is, it's a protector, it's a survivor. Yeah. And she's going to do what it takes. Yeah. And she does. She survives under the mountain. She does what it takes. She does. To survive. I got to say um first of all that the the trials were highly entertaining to me. I actually really enjoyed them. Mm-hmm. I think the first one with the worm, first of all, 
bizarre? What was that like a like a sandworm from Dune? I mean, what was I literally it? just picture a sandworm from or Dune. Or like that giant worm from um SpongeBob. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? The, yeah. Bizarre that it's a worm, but I just remember in that that scene being like, "Oh shit, like Feyre is smart and we get moments throughout the book where you're like oh she's smart she's she can like think out a plan and she thinks about ramifications but this is the first time that we're like I feel like one of her plans actually works out kind of yeah and it's such a badass moment oh my it was such a thrill to read I love that part and SJM writes action scenes with high stakes very well. It's so good and it's so vivid. Like I can just see them all like standing around like watching her and she's like racing through and like yeah. The chaos of that is just really really satisfying. We also get to see as sort of mentioned earlier a sort of a different side of Tamlin under the mountain. Mhm. And he's extremely downtrodden he is not responding to anything he's like no emotion he's sort of like i think like i think he's like mentally shut down like i think he's gone so far into himself as like a protecting mechanism that he's just like not really registering anything that's happening and that's I also think it's sort of a defense mechanism yeah. because he knows Amarantha's doing all of this to humiliate him and so he doesn't want to give her the satisfaction of like showing any emotion. Mm, that's a really good point, especially with Feyre because she yeah. knows that he cares for her and so as to try and prevent any further like he doesn't want to give her the satisfaction of knowing that he's upset that Feyre is being harmed. But I think yeah. From Feyre's perspective, she's like, bro, WTF. Yeah. This is... Yeah, she's mad about it. Yeah, she's not happy. She's frustrated. And so that's what I think just what you were saying earlier about, like, the way they respond differently to trauma. Mm -hmm. He very clearly is, like, shutting down and putting up a wall, which, surprise, surprise, he had his walls up in the beginning and they're back up. And she is, you know, doing her best to just spring into action yeah i think she instead of shutting down i think it really like lights a fire within her where she was like you know what i i'm probably gonna die here and it's probably not gonna be pretty but i'm going to fight with everything that i have and so they're they really have pretty much opposite responses which is kind of crazy because we Mm -hmm. we do have this foundation of them being so similar that then their natural responses to being under like such a, a significant pressure is kind of interesting. Definitely. We also get um, a lot less of Tamlin and a lot more of Resand mm-hmm. in this portion of the book. And, and also some of Amar- Amarantha, who's been like this creepy big bad the mm-hmm. whole book, like this ominous person behind all these violent happenings. Um, but then we finally meet her. And first of all, I just had to flag that it's hilarious that when Feyre meets her, the way she describes her is like, hmm, she's not that pretty. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the exact quote. 
<laughs> but it just cracks me up. She's like, I expected her to be prettier. Not the point, but I picture her like a red-haired Helena Bonham Carter as Bellatrix. Ah, that's good. That's good. I was picturing, um, oh my gosh, what's her name from Twilight? Oh, Victoria? Victoria from Twilight. Oh. That's that's like who she was in my mind. It's another good one. Another good one. Mm-hmm. Um, what do we think of her as a villain? She's um, strange to me because she's just, she like, I think SJM tried to explain her motivations, but she's so diabolical that it's like almost not believable to me. I don't know if you feel the same. Yeah. So that, that was what I was going to say that sort of from a aesthetic vibe POV like perspective, I think she is very compelling. I think she's like, as JM describes her as being very scary and like creepy. Mm-hmm. And she has like a real, um, almost like Corella Deville energy in a yeah. way. But then the backstory and the motivations don't seem to align. Or at least I don't buy into the story enough to feel like that's why she's, like, crazy evil. Yeah, because it's supposed to be that she, like, is upset that her sister was murdered by a human that betrayed her, question yeah. mark? Yeah, it's, like, it's something about... Cause that's why she, like, has Jurian's eyeball. Is it his eyeball? It's his eyeball. Yeah, it's his eyeball and his finger bone. Which I'm going to be honest, that is, um, it's terrifying. And I really appreciate how terrifying that is. And the fact little that little he's, eyes she's like, around. yeah. And she's kept his consciousness alive and helpless in that ring for hundreds of years. I mean, that's some crazy fantasy shit that's scary. That's the thing is she's so crazy. She's too crazy. She's so, Yeah. And and so she's so crazy and they sort of blame it on what the death of her sister and like mm-hmm. betrayal. But that's like not enough to make somebody a psychopath. Right. Yeah. So it's one of those she's one of those villains where it's like I just kind of suspend my disbelief and don't think about her too much because she's like such a big bad and we don't get a lot of I don't know. I just feel like the attempts to get us to understand her and empathize with her are pretty weak. Yeah. Yeah. There's. Not a ton. The focus is definitely on, oh, she's, like, sadistic mm-hmm. and not really on why she might be that way. And so you're just like, oh, bad. Kill her. Yeah. And, right. have, and I have no additional thoughts. Yeah. Same. Same. I think uh, as far as villains go, she's not the most effective one for me, but I love this book anyway. But a more effective villain is probably resand uh-huh who at this point under the mountain we get to see a lot of different sides of him and there's a lot he becomes even more morally gray under the mountain yes because we find out that he and Feyre have sort of a common goal which is to see amarantha dead yes however resand is in a much more powerful position than Feyre. Feyre is very vulnerable compared to him mm-hmm. and he is able to abuse that power to get what he wants yes but he and Feyre do sort of become 
sort of like default allies just because they don't neither of them have any other options yes and I think that makes their relationship and their dynamic really interesting and it makes I think Resand is a particularly interesting character because there's so much that we aren't getting from him because we're in Feyre's POV and he's right. clearly withholding information. He's clearly got his own agenda, his own motivations, and we are only getting like these little glimpses of what he is very consciously allowing Feyre to see. And so yeah. it's really interesting to be in a character's mind and have them be aware that the person they're interacting with has secrets and is manipulating them and yet not being able to do anything about that. Yeah, because Feyre says several times like that she can sense he has ulterior motives. Mm-hmm. And she tries to ask him outright. She's pretty bold with him, given how powerful he is and the fact that he could crush her in a second. And she's she tries to figure out what his deal is. But like you said, he's very intentional about what he reveals and what he doesn't. And so it it does create kind of this interesting dynamic where he is uh, obviously there's a power dynamic where he's very physically capable of overpowering her um mm-hmm. because of his mind powers and you know he's a magical fae but they he also needs her in order to defeat Amarantha and so they they kind of need each other which is an interesting relationship to have with a villain yeah, it's a reluctant ally. Yeah, it's like the villain is her reluctant ally, which is then, is he the villain? He's like a semi-villain? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just think the last part of this book is super interesting because of the fact that Feyre, we get to see her be a badass and a survivor, uh, but we also see that she clearly needs help, uh, mm-hmm. specifically with the second trial. I know. I mean, she would not have survived that if the- Rhysand's bargain did not, if he didn't communicate through that bargain that she needed to pull a certain lover. I know. It will, and it's so, first of all, I will flag, uh, the bargain is also a real magical loophole, suspend your disbelief. There's no, yeah. like, like pre-existing evidence of this. Like, could, can anybody do this kind of magic? Like, why wouldn't Tamlin do this if that was, like, something that... Is it just because Rhysand can... Oh, maybe it's just because he can talk through minds. It doesn't have anything I don't know. to do with bargain. I, and, well, and when they do the bargain and she gets that tattoo, he's like, it's common for bargains in the night court to have, like, a permanent physical effect or something. And so it's, like, insinuating that bargains are made often in the night court and maybe not elsewhere. Maybe that's something that's twisted about the night court. I don't know. We don't know very much about it. It's supposed to be super secret. Secret. Yeah. It's the bargain is strange. Yeah. The bargain (laughs) is strange. And I think there's like some magical elements there that are probably not (laughs) like once again, fast and loose with the magic system, I think on the bargain front. Yeah. And the actual bargain that they make that he like wants her to come stay in the night court for two weeks out of every month. It seems like a weird ask, and Feyre knows that it's a weird ask, but ultimately I think it goes back to what you were saying about um, Feyre being a pawn in Tamlin and Rhysand's feud, uh, because Rhysand knows that Tamlin loves 
Feyre. So taking her away for part of the time is going to humiliate and anger him. Yep. Another Feyre is once again a pawn. I know. Unfortunate for her. But she she does, you know, really stick it out and survive which i just this last like she actually doesn't survive that's very true actually (laughs) but she she makes it through all three trials okay i will say one thing that i didn't super understand was like this whole thing about tamlin's heart oh his heart being made of stone yeah what's up with that i don't know and is it are not, they like vampires? They don't well, need hearts to survive. Is it not? Well, I was like, I thought maybe Amantha, whatever her name is, had made it stone, and then that's what I thought. Is it like not stone anymore? Like when the, I think so, because uh, Alice says like there's a part of the the curse that that even I can't tell you, no one can tell you, and so my understanding was that that the Tamlin's heart being turned to stone was part of the curse but i guess like magic system wise and anatomically wise it's strange that he's well, just, i was like, gonna alive. say what does it mean like is he not ca- like does he love Feyre? is he even capable of that like if his heart is stone or does it mean he can't die like i don't know it, it was the, literally when she stabs him and his heart is stone i was like what it was the what? most jarring, confusing thing in my life. I didn't understand it at all. And I don't feel like I ever got any resolution. Maybe I didn't pay attention, but... It's very strange. It, it's it's like a, it comes out of nowhere and then is like not addressed. Like we don't find out afterwards, Tamlin's heart is normal now. Like it's, <laughs> like it's just forever stone. <laughs> also, I something else I had to say is Feyre has such a good memory. Because she remembers these two instances where, like, the Heart of Stone thing is a throwaway line. I picked it up this time reading the book because I knew what was going to happen. But the first time I read it, I did not remember either time that they had mentioned that Tamlin's heart is made of stone. And so, and also, Amarantha gives her that riddle and then Feyre just, like, memorizes it right away so she can turn the words over in her mind. I'm like, how did you remember that after hearing it twice? I know. I know. She does have a fantastic memory. Also, that riddle. Okay. Why? Yeah. No, the <laughs> riddle was not. I clocked it the first time I yeah. read it. I was like, you know, this doesn't really make sense, but I bet the answer is love. It's always, sure the answer enough, is always love. The answer is always love. <laughs> um, Something that I feel like we should talk about before we talk about like the very, very end is just the way that Resand uses Farah. And um, and the way Tamlin responds, because there were just a couple things I had flagged mm-hmm. at the end of this book. One being that when Tamlin, like the one moment he does get with Feyre under the mountain, he like sequesters her into that little hallway and just does not say a word. They just make out. And I was oh, like, bro, I... ask her if she's OK. No, like like there's so many. That scene was so frustrating because and I think Feyre also is like sort of a little taken aback as well like I think she's into like the make out and she's like all right I'll go along with this but I do think that there's like it's like whoa time and place bro like it yeah like let's use this moment to be like are we okay 
how can we escape? Like, what's been happening? Like, there's just, I think it's interesting because I think it shows us that for Tamlin, physical contact and intimacy is like his way of showing and expressing Mm -hmm. love and just like his emotions in general. And so I think that for him, there's no desire to communicate verbally because he feels like his physical actions are going to do that for him. And I think we see that in a lot of moments in the book. Like he's not a super verbal dude. He's not. No. He's never great at communicating. He's never chatty. And I and so I think it holds that that's what he chooses to do in that moment. But it is pretty frustrating. Yeah. No, it's it's very frustrating. I agree it makes his character consistent, but it's just so frustrating when we've been rooting for him and Pharaoh this whole time. And that scene also allows Reese to sort of step in and and essentially protect Pharaoh because she realizes afterwards, like Reese kind of forces himself upon her and makes and kisses her and she's not happy about it, but then afterwards she's like, "Oh, Tamlin had like screwed up all my paint, like smudged it all around." So if Amarantha had seen that and not seen Reese kissing me, then she would like bad things would have happened. So mm-hmm. it's sort of a realization moment for her that like, oh, I guess Reese is, is maybe my ally, even though he sucks. Well, and I think it also gives us a moment of being like, okay, Reese and is also pretty smart. And he's yes. a real long term thinker. And Tamlin is a much and we and we see this earlier in the book that he is a much shorter term thinker. Yes. And like he like Tamlin just sort of immediately acts on his desires versus Rhysan is always playing the long game mm-hmm. and you're never quite sure what his end goal is mm-hmm. versus Tamlin's goals and um motivations are super super on his sleeve almost to his detriment and So I think it's interesting to sort of in that particular scene, you get the two of them immediately juxtaposed of what their sort of uh, personalities are as -hmm. far as like action. And I think that's kind of I didn't realize that the first time through because it's like, whoa, she's making out with one guy. Oh, she's making out with another guy. And you're like, (laughs) what's going on? But I think thinking about the book as a whole – and revisiting that scene, I think it's really clear that Tamlin and Rhysand just have really different ways of acting out a like they they have really different ways of planning and seeing solutions and problems. Yes, that's very true. Because Tamlin really was not having a lot of foresight when he pulled Feyre no. into that room. No. Uh, the last thing I want to talk about is the final trial because. This is like, I mean, physically the easiest, but mentally the hardest for mm-hmm. Feyre. She's not in imminent danger. She has all the power. She's given knives and three people kneel before her and she has to stab them. Um, and, it, and it's clear that she's very upset about this. And it's mm-hmm. hard to read. I think one of the best scenes in this book, just like for emotional impact, is the second fairy, the girl when Feyre's about to stab her and she's like sort of saying this like prayer thing that they recite. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's looking Feyre directly in the eyes as she's saying this prayer that's like, take me to the immortal land of milk and honey as a way of being like, 
kill me, like do it. I know I need to die. And Feyre's clearly so distraught about it. And it's that's just a really emotional and also very cinematic scene. I think it's super mm-hmm. well written. Well, and it connects back so well with that moment with the fairy who's had their wings torn off because Tamlin says the same prayer over them. And yeah. and in both scenes you see Feyre so affected by what is being done and and I think when the fairy gets their wings torn off and dies, Feyre is like mentally in a space of like, how could somebody do this? This is like horrible. Mm-hmm. This is awful. And then to see herself be the one inflicting yeah. on another person, I think is a really, it really shows us how traumatic this moment is for Feyre and how heavily impacted it's going to be for her. Yeah, because when this story ends, interestingly, it does not end on a cliffhanger, uh, but it does end with Feyre, like, like clearly she's distraught. Like, once once it all is said and done and, you know, Amarantha kills her, surprise, surprise, Am- Amarantha wasn't going to follow through with her word. She kills Feyre. Feyre solves the riddle, so all these Fey lords suddenly have their magic back. By the way, that didn't make any sense. Yeah, I was, once again, I think similarly with the bargain thing, I guess, yeah. I'd, uh, I, the bargains, like Was there some curses, sort of magic tied riddles, to that riddle out of Amarantha's know. control? I don't know. Because it seems like she would not have given them back their magic if it was up to her, so. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, all the High Lords give Feyre, interestingly, actually, we watch Feyre's consciousness, like, sort of still be alive and watching herself through Rhysand's eyes, which mm-hmm. is really interesting. So it's like this bargain, like, tied her to him in a way that kept her consciousness alive. A lot of implications there, again, for the bargains that we don't understand. The, and then every High Lord gives her a kernel of their magic, and she's resurrected as High Fae. Mm-hmm. She is, A, distraught about being High Fae, because being human was, like, such an important part of her identity, that even though now she has a, probably like a lot of new physical power, she just she doesn't know what to do with that. Um, everything as she know it is turned upside down, and she's very distraught about having to kill these these fairies. Mm-hmm. She's thinking about it, seeing their faces. She can't really sleep, and um, and her and Tamlin have sort of a conversation where they're basically just like, "We'll talk about it later," and then. She has a, a quick chat with Resand, <laughs> which is a strange interaction because he sort of tells her like, hey, I was on your side the whole time in case you didn't catch that. And then <laughs> he like steps back and looks at her really wide eyed and surprised and then disappears. I know. Strange. It's so um, I'm I'm a, when I first read that, I was like, ah, shit. Like what? What just happened? Because it's like he stumbled what is I began? He disappeared. And I was like, well, that's that's going to well, be a problem later. I don't know what that was, but it's going to be a problem. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I, and so it's like we don't get a cliffhanger, but we get enough of being like, mm, we have some loose ends here um, yeah. that we need tied up. And I had flagged that the end of this book was kind of sinister because the, the second to last paragraph Feyre says, I stepped out of Tamlin's arms and kissed him softly. Tomorrow, there would be tomorrow and an eternity to face what I had done, to face what I shredded into pieces inside myself while under the mountain. 
But for now, for today, let's go home, I said, and took his hand. So mm-hmm. it's very much like, like she is, this is emotionally not resolved for her. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of loose ends for, I think, Feyre's character and what comes next. She's not just going to go home and be mm-hmm. happily ever after. At least that's what she's insinuating. But um, at least all the events of the book are tied up nicely. So I appreciated that as a reader, too. Mm-hmm. when I was reading this for the first time because it didn't like end in a cliffhanger yes no I appreciated that as well because I think that so often we kind of get the opposite experience where the plot is on a cliffhanger but emotionally the characters seem to have zipped themselves up and are like totally fine now and they're not mm-hmm. having to deal with the ramifications of anything that's happened in this whole book which mm-hmm. is not very realistic. I think this ending is a much more logical and I'm going to say realistic, even though it's fantasy, to be like, yeah. okay, yeah, like we finished our quest or whatever, but we have a lot of emotional baggage and turmoil from what we had to do. Mm-hmm. And now we have to reckon with that. And we have, and that remains to be explored and it's not that the plot remains to be explored it's that our emotions do and I think that that really sets it up for you as the reader you finish it and you are immediately like oh I want the next book not because Mm -hmm. I want to know what happens next but because I know that Feyre emotionally feels incomplete and I need to know where where's that emotion going not what happens next in her life but what happens to her emotionally and i yeah. think that that's a really interesting place to be yeah no i agree i i, I haven't seen that very often in other series mm-hmm. where like we get this kind of of cliffhanger uh, where it's emotional and not like they're physically in dire stakes One, I think that that's why this book is maybe so appealing to such a broad audience because it does such a good job of capturing real emotions and turmoil Mm -hmm. and it allows the fantasy element to feel more tangible without having to do any outrageous world building. I think normally fantasy becomes tangible when you do a lot of world building and all of your like logistical questions can be answered versus Mm -hmm. this book didn't do a ton of world building. There are logistical questions. The magic system is meaningless, but the emotions are so real and logical and consistent that you can buy into the world. And so I, I think that that's kind of interesting that I think SJM was able to compensate for the lack of world building with some real quality emotional character work. Yeah, I would agree. That's the biggest strength of of this book for me. Okay, to end it, I just want to read you this because I think it's hilarious. This um, prediction that I, I texted this to you in July of 2022 because you read this series before me. And I had, I had finished this book, uh, but not read any of the other ones. And I said, also just going to put this out there as maybe not a prediction, but something I want to happen. I want Nesta to get involved in the Fey world and then want her and Rhysand to fall in love. She's a badass and he is a slightly problematic king who I want to have a redemption arc. I mean, he kind of got one, but I want to see more. And I feel like Nesta was too important in the first book to just disappear from the series. Okay, that's all. (laughs) 
So that's what my prediction was after reading this book for the first time. If you, the listener, uh, have read this for the first time and have not continued the series, drop your predictions in the comment thing below. If you're on Spotify and you like scroll down from the episode, I'll put a little question box. I want to know what people's predictions are after reading this because the second book, let me just tell you, it's a journey. It's a real journey. And we're going to talk about it next week. So stay tuned. Come back. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for tuning into such a long episode. There is so much to unpack with this series, and we will continue doing it. We, we upload episodes every Tuesday, and you can get in touch with us by checking our show notes for our Instagram, Goodreads, and email. And with that, we will see you next week. Bye! Bye.